Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Looking In podcast. Now, uh, today we're going to be looking into uh, a wide range of topics, from Elizabeth Warren uh, to Harvard, Ivy League schools, the upcoming 2020 election, In it's all related in, in some of the most uh, absurd and interconnecting ways, so, so buckle in for this one. Uh, we want to start off with the fact that Elizabeth Warren has recently taken a, a DNA test to uh, either vindicate herself or, or to prove that that she has Native American heritage. Uh, I mean, the, the reason for doing this goes back to uh, July 5th of, of this year where Trump made an offer to her uh, during a campaign rally. Now, um, listen to this clip and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. No, it's causing her problems. You know, that name's good because now even the liberals are saying, take a test, take a test. You know, the, I tell you, I, I shouldn't tell you because I like not to give away secrets, but this one, let's say I'm debating Pocahontas, right? I promise you I'll do this. I will take, you know, those little kits they sell on television for $2. Learn your heritage. The guy says, I was born in Scotland. It turns out he was born in Puerto Rico. And that's okay. It's good. You know, guy says, I was born in Germany. Well, he wasn't born in Germany. He was born someplace. Else. I'm going to get one of those little kids. And in the middle of the debate, when she proclaims that she's of Indian heritage, because her mother said she has high cheekbones. That's her only evidence, that her mother said she had high cheekbones. We will take that little kid and say, but we have to do it gently. Because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. And we will very gently take that kid, and we will slowly toss it, hoping it doesn't hit her and injure her arm. Even though it only weighs probably two ounces. And we will say, I will give you a million dollars to your favorite charity, paid for by Trump, if you take the test and it shows you're an Indian. You know Oh, all right. I, I think that is self-explanatory. Um, so, in a, in a series of tweets on Monday, uh, Elizabeth Warren called on Trump to pay the $1 million in charity. Uh, this has been criticized by, by various sources saying that this does not prove anything. In fact, uh, the, the test that they took showed that it could be... Uh, as as little as one in one thousand twenty fourth Native American. However, the the validity of this test has been questioned due to uh, allowing uh, indigenous peoples in Mexico, Colombia, and Peru to count as, uh, as as Native American. And Elizabeth Warren has always claimed to uh, have connections to the Cherokee tribe. No, I I I don't personally care that much about her genetic background. I don't think it makes a much of a difference in political legitimacy, but th- this has been made an issue as of late, as of whether or not she's Cherokee. Um, the, the, the general claim being that it, it has given her advantage in her educational and political career to uh, appear as a minority. So uh, with, with that in mind, it's important to, to be clear on 
where the Native American status has been used in Elizabeth Warren's background. Uh, when she was, uh, in the 1990s, when she was in Harvard uh, as a professor, she was toted by the, by the institution as, as a Native American. And during that time, she enlisted herself as a minority in the Association of American Law Schools directory. So she, she did have herself listed as a minority while she was teaching at Harvard. Did the minority status help her get into her, her education? Did it help her get to that point? That, that, that doesn't seem as clear. When, when, when in her application for college, she checked no on, on the question of whether or not she fit under any minority group. So I, I'm extremely skeptical that her minority status got her to the place she was up until the point where she became a Harvard professor. Since then, it, uh, that's up for more debate. Whether or not Donald Trump uh, legitimately owes her $1 million for uh, one in 1,024th Native American uh, heritage, which may or may not be Cherokee, but Mexican and indigenous tribes, I, I, I don't think he has to do that. He did make a legitimate offer, but this doesn't seem as strong enough evidence. And in fact, the average American um, has more Native American DNA than uh, Elizabeth Warren does, given the results of this test. So I, I don't think this vindicates her nearly as much as, as she expected it to. So the real question is, why is this uh, an important topic at all? Why are people arguing about Native American status or the, the influence that this had in advancing someone's career? Well, that's where the topic of affirmative action comes in. Now, if you don't know what affirmative action is, affirmative action is the, the legal process in institutions in the United States of which um, an advantage is meant to be given to my minorities who are seen as uh, discriminated against at large. So the affirmative action, is, its intention is to give them a, a boost and to to help even the playing field in the higher education realm. Now, the debate that's being had right now is whether or not that's effective, whether it does the job of which it sets out to do, and whether it is just and legal constitutionally in the nation. So let's take a look at, at how affirmative action even got into place in the United States. Taking a look at the American Association for Access, Equity, and Diversity, they, they've posted a, a fairly accurate history of affirmative action policies uh, going back to the 1960s. So the, the first thing that pops up, 1961, JFK, uh, his executive order number uh, 10925, issued affirmative action for the first time by instructing federal contractors to take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are treated equally without regard to race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And this also created the Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity. 
past that point, 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 signed into law. Landmark legislation prohibiting employment discrimination by large employers over 15 employees, whether or not they had government contracts. And this also established the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So this was more of a, of a private sector reach building off of uh, what John F. Uh, Kennedy made in his earlier executive order from three years prior. 1965, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson issued Executive Order um, 11246, requiring all government contractors and subcontractors to take affirmative action to expand job opportunities for minorities and establish the Office of Federal Contract Compliance in the Department of Labor. 1967, President Johnson amended Executive Order 11246 to include affirmative action for women. 1970, Labor Department under Richard Nixon issued Order Number 4, authoring, authorizing flexible goals and timelines, timetables to correct underutilization of minorities by federal contractors. One year later, uh, that was revised to include women. That same year, Nixon uh, issued Executive Order 11625, directing federal agencies to develop comprehensive plans and specific program goals for a national minority business enterprise contracting program. Now, he, here's, a, here's a key change. In 1979, the Supreme Court ruled in the United Steelworkers of America, AFL-CIO v. Weber, that race-conscious affirmative action efforts designed to eliminate a conspicuous racial imbalance in an employee's workforce resulting from past discrimination are permissible if they are temporary and do not violate the rights of white employees. Uh, this was uh, a change to directly eliminate racial imbalance. And this was meant to be, be temporary to alleviate uh, clear and particular discrimination in this workforce. Where we really get into interesting territory is in 1995, where the regents of the University of California voted to end affirmative action programs at all University of California campuses. And um, beginning in 1997 for graduate schools, 1998 for undergrad admissions, officials at uh, the university were no longer allowed to use race, gender, ethnicity, or national origin as a factor in admission decisions. Say so they would remove all of these um, sections of of, of race, of gender, of ethnicity, of national origin, like these would no longer be an evaluating factor. They would no longer use that as basis of whether or not you would get in. Um, that same year, the Bipartisan Glass Ceiling Commission released a report on the endurance of barriers that deny women and minorities access to decision-making processes, and they ended up making a recommendation that corporate America use affirmative action as a tool ensuring that all qualified individuals have equal access and opportunity. So we're arguing that uh, c corporations should evaluate their racial profile and use that to ensure that they're not discriminating based on race and hopefully getting qualified people based on ability and merit while also looking at their racial profile. Does that make sense? Uh, in 1996, California comes back with Proposition 209, um, which abolished all public sector um, affirmative action programs in state in employment, education, and contracting. Now, from that point on, it goes back and forth with, with uh, states trying to put in um, barriers to affirmative action programs. 
uh, attempts at the federal level to remove this. It's it, it's gone back and forth for for some time. And in 2003, the the Supreme Court gave its decision in Grutter v. Bollinger. And the court held that the University of Michigan's use of race, among other factors, in its law school admissions program was constitutional because the program furthered a compelling interest in obtaining an, quote, educational benefit that flows from student body diversity, end quote. It also found that the law school's program was narrowly tailored, it was flexible, and provided for a, quote, holistic, end quote, review of each applicant. In Gratz, the court rejected the undergraduate admissions program at the College of Literature, Science, and Arts, which granted points based on race and ethnicity and did not provide a review of each applicant's entire file. It just gave points based on your race and ethnicity to attempt to um, cater to the affirmative action laws at the time. Now, in in getting a holistic review of of the rest of the history of this, and I, I know it's it's a bit complicated grasping the, the, the full length of this timeline. But well, there, there's eight states that have banned affirmative action in their state, starting with California, like, like we mentioned earlier with their Proposition 209, 1996. And in the order uh, from that point on, Washington, Florida, Michigan, Nebraska, Colorado, Arizona, New Hampshire, and in 2012, Oklahoma. Now, the most important one on that list was Michigan, which we looked over with that 2003 case, three years before um, Michigan banned this. And in 2014, the Supreme Court revisited Michigan and and found that states could ban affirmative action in their state, that that was constitutional. What I find most interesting is this uh, uh, amendment to the Michigan Constitution, which was then evaluated by the Supreme Court, is extremely similar to that of the uh, executive order from John Kennedy, which was at the beginning of our um, affirmative action timeline, where um, JFK in 1961 uh, said that contractors take affirmative action to ensure that applications are treated equally without regard to race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. End quote. That was what JFK implemented. And with the amendment to the Michigan Constitution, it says the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, or public contracting. End quote. They're they're very similar in, in terms of language. But... With JFK's, it was the start of affirmative action. And with this, it was the end of affirmative action in that state. Even though the language is, is nearly the same. It, it, it sort of show, demonstrates how, how this has changed over time. And what the interpretation of the language has meant. With, with JFK, it was to ensure that applicants are treated equally, which led into a more of an evaluation of, of, of race and distribution of race in organizations, whereas Michigan used a very similar language to ensure we're not going to look at it at all. This is not going to be a factor. This cannot be a factor when you're evaluating an employee. You cannot get preferential treatment to, and you cannot discriminate against 
based on these factors. You cannot look at it. And what's so interesting about the, these two examples is that they were both crafted with the intention of equal opportunity at heart. With, with JFK's, he wanted each race to have equal opportunity. He wanted each group to not be discriminated against. And with the Michigan case, uh, it, it's almost the same language. They, they add grant preferential treatment to, in addendum to shall not discriminate against, with the intention of, of creating equal opportunity for everyone, for all of these different segments of race, sex, color, ethnicity, national origin in that state. They, they both have the same intention, but they go about it in two very different ways. So how do Americans feel about the issue now? Well, in a Gallup poll in, uh, from June to July in 2016, 65% of Americans disapprove of Supreme Court ruling on college admissions, meaning that uh, 65% of Americans disagree with the Supreme Court uh, allowing race to be a factor in college admissions, that they can use that to evaluate whether or not you get in, that that can be a factor. Um, 50% to 44% of uh, African Americans in the country favor merit over, over race in terms of college application. And 7 in 10 Americans holistically say that merit should be the only basis for college admissions. And so that, those stats speak for themselves as to the, the current state of opinion on the affirmative action problem in the United States. Even with those um, that these laws are purporting to help, they're split 50-50 on their, their opinion of whether or not this should happen. Another piece to take a look at is a 2017 article from the New York Times uh, claiming that even with affirmative action, blacks and Hispanics are more underrepresented at top colleges than 35 years ago. And they, they present data purporting to show that uh, whites and Asians are overrepresented and Hispanics and blacks are underrepresented uh, among freshmen at top colleges relative to the U.S. population. So say if uh, like around 15% of African Americans um, are at college freshman level, but this is saying that given that that percentage representation in college is is less than than 50, 15% of of uh, college students are black. So they're saying that this is underrepresentation and they're saying based on the data of demographics over time from 1980 to 2015 that for whites and Asians in the United States um that they've become more overrepresented and that Hispanics and blacks have become more underrepresented. And this has been with affirmative action plans being in place for a majority of those times. So the, the question is, um, are, are these programs effective? Do they do what the intention was? If we're seeing the, these increasing gaps of representation and we're claiming that we're saying that's a legitimate problem. Is affirmative action really the solution? It doesn't seem like it's actually 
going out and fixing the issue of representation uh, based on, on what I'm seeing. And, and you, can, you can look this up yourself, and I recommend pulling over this data um, of New York Times. Even with affirmative action, blacks and Hispanics are more underrepresented at top colleges than 35 years ago. It was from August 24, 2017. Look this up. This is very interesting stuff. Just from pulling over this, I I would argue that even with affirmative action giving a, a boost to discern minorities, that there there's still an educational gap in America, that there's still issues in, in lower education and and cultural barriers that, that need to be broken down. And if we, we don't fix these racial differences from the point that people are, are children and by the time they get to middle school and high school, you're going to see these differences in, in post-high school rates of admission. I would argue that this would have to be combated early on in, in students' lives in education, in family life before trying to remedy the problem 20 years after the fact. This kind of thing goes to, to the root of American problems. And you can look over this yourself. And I recommend developing your own opinions on this, but from what I'm seeing and what, what is being shown to me through representation at colleges this has not been an effective program it it I, it seems like it's very hard to make a claim that that this has fixed the problem i can see people making an argument that this is a step in the right direction but ideally your goal should be to not need affirmative action at all i think in an ideal world you would have Organizations like what Michigan has put up in the Constitution that we read, that there will be no view on on race, on sex, on nationality, and so on. That it's not even taken into account and solely go off of the, the merit of each individual. And if you're, you're still seeing differences in representation, well, then that, that goes to prove that there are issues in, in youth education and in youth upbringing that need to be combated. And I recommend we have a conversation about those issues. But the idea that affirmative action uh, has been a step in the right direction and is definitively fixing this problem seems to be not the case here. And earlier when we mentioned that uh, 44 to 50% of African Americans were against these affirmative action policies and would prefer to be judged based off of merit um, I actually found some quotes from uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, the only African-American judge on the Supreme Court. Uh, he, he opposes affirmative action. Under the 14th Amendment, which states, All persons born or naturalized in the United States are subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they, re they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States nor shall any state deprive any person of life, 
liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So he's arguing under the equal protection clause of this amendment that affirmative action is not treating everybody equally under the law, but instead is treating people unequally based on, on their race and taking that into factor while making their, their decision. Uh, in fact, in a, in a 60 Minutes piece in 2007, uh, he, he described affirmative action as a cult of victimization, end quote. Now, this was largely based off of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, stating all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the, the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction of the equal protection of laws. Now that last bit, the equal protection clause, is, is likely what, what Clarence what was referring to. When, when he opposed uh, affirmative action under the 14th Amendment. That this was not equal protection under the law as it favored certain groups over others. It, it gave them a certain adva- advantage over others. Um, in fact, he could also be referring to uh, what's called the mismatch effect uh, by, by a man named Richard Sander, uh, who, who made the claim that artificially elevating minority students into schools they would otherwise not be capable of attending discourages them and tends to uh, engender failure and high dropout rates for said students. An example given is that roughly 50% of black college students rank in the bottom 20% of their classes, and that black law school graduates are four times as likely to fail bar exams as are their white colleagues. Now this is not an argument that uh, minorities should not be able to get into high university, but instead it is an argument that there is detriment attached to elevating students students into colleges that they're not academically suited for. And as I argued while uh, reviewing the results from the, the New York Times evaluation, we, we should be dealing with this problem early on during the del- developmental years of, of students, the most valuable years of their, their lives. In, in developing the brain. By the time you are applying for college, academically, you're, you're pretty set in stone. So tackling these issues at the home, at the early education level, seems like the, the best way of going about this and, and preventing uh, this kind of uh, discouragement in high dropout rates. Uh, another... Uh, interesting thing to look at. There was a 2005 study that I found by Princeton sociologists Thomas um, Esbenshade and Cheng Chung comparing the effects of affirmative action on racial and special groups at three highly selective private research facilities. Now, what, what this did was it represented admissions disadvantage and advantage in terms of SAT points, and now this is on the old 1600-point uh, scale which is no longer used. Uh, for the control group, they, they used um, whites who were uh, non-recruited athletically and not children of alumni 
uh, as zero advantage, disadvantage. So everything from this point on is going to be seen as in comparison to this white control group. Um, for blacks, uh, comparatively, we're given an extra 230 points advantage-wise on the SAT. Hispanics, plus 185 advantage points. Asians, negative 50 advantage SAT points. Recruited athletes, plus 200. And legacies, uh, who are children of alumni, 160 advantage SAT points. Now, what, what this is showing it seems to be that uh, the, the people are not being treated equally academically. At, at the very least in, in this study of, of these private research universities, that in, in terms of the SAT, th this is not by merit, which was the intention all along. It was to avoid discrimination by race and to evaluate by merit and to ensure that we were not discriminating based on racial or, or sexual or national traits. But this is showing that we are. And not only are we doing that, but in the particular of, of Asian students, they're actually being treated detrimentally. If the goal was to assist and help minorities be, be treated fairly and equally uh, under the admission processes of, of college universities, a Asians are, are being affected the worst uh, out, of, out of all of these groups. And the, the same sociologist who did this examined data on students applying to college in 1997 and calculated that Asian Americans needed nearly perfect SAT scores at the time of 1550 to have the same chance of being accepted at a top private university as whites who scored a 1410 and African Americans who got a 1100 score. I, and I, I think that data speaks for itself. I, I, I can only go so much more into this before I, I repeat myself over and over. But I, I think these reports are, are discouraging and very much an element of concern. That, that racial discrimination in the college acceptance process is at the very least uh, an issue still. Now... There, there's, there's a bit of information that, that I was able to still find. Um, now, this is from a site called AsianAM.org, um, in, in a bit called Hall of Shame College Admission Officers Acceptance Rates. So you can look this up for yourself. It showed uh, college acceptance rates in 2005 uh, over, over five high-end universities comparing the overall acceptance rate. So uh, if, if it's 10%, that means 10% of all people who applied got in. That's the overall versus the black acceptance rate, which is the percentage of, uh, of African-Americans, of black people, percentage of those who, who got in and, and comparing those two numbers. So for Harvard... In 2005, the overall acceptance rate was 10%, and the black acceptance rate was 16.7%, which is a difference of 67%. In MIT, overall was 15.9%, black acceptance rate was 31.6%, difference of 98.7%. In Brown, overall was 16.6%, black 26.3%, difference of plus 58.4%. In Penn, 
overall was 21.2%, black acceptance rate 30.1%, a difference of 42%. Georgetown overall was 22 and black acceptance rate was 30.7. So for each of these high-end universities, the black acceptance rate was higher than the overall acceptance rate. So so in in this racial group, if you're evaluating by that, they were accepted in higher rates than than those who applied overall. Which makes me question even more the the Times article that a, a factor in uh, in the representation could be the um, rates of people who are actually applying that perhaps there there's um, not necessarily discrimination but there is a a discrepancy uh, per racial background in who's applying for college because if we're going to find solutions. We need to find the legitimate sources of the problems rather than patchwork attempts after the fact uh, to rectify. Now, allow me to introduce you to a potential solution to this issue that, that has come up recently. Now, we're going to have to give you a little uh, history lesson from the last few years as well on um, this guy named Michael Wang, uh, in, in July 2014, this, this man was in uh, James Logan High School. He had a perfect ACT. He was, he had, it was in the 99th percentile for his SAT. He was on the debate team. He co-founded the math club. He played in piano choir for the San Francisco Opera and at President Obama's inauguration. And it was his dream to to get into one of the Ivy League schools that he applied for. I mean, it, just in reading this, the, this guy seems pretty qualified. But he was uh, reject, rejected from all Ivy League schools except for the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and My, Michael Wang has reported that several other Asian students, uh, Asian American students that he was talking with had been facing similar issues. And that he had been told ever since he was a kid that he needs to turn off the TV. He needs to be studious. He needs to be better than all the Asian students. So that he can actually get into college. Because he has to compete with the other members of his race. And in fact, there was mention of a, something called the Asian Advocate Company. Which would help Asian American students appear more white on their applications, so they would have a higher chance of, of getting into college. Now, if, if you're not feeling a bit uncomfortable from this already, you, you should. This is, this is more than, than ridiculous. I mean, the, the idea that Asian American students are having to uh, try to appear as white as possible by, by changing uh, bits of of their application, and by trying not to join piano clubs or or certain debate clubs, and, and doing more sports to appear more like like a, like a white student to get away with it on their their college applications. Th- this shouldn't be an issue. This shouldn't be a thing. Which is why uh, Michael Wing actually uh, ended up meeting with a man named Edward Bloom. Contacted this man, a financial advisor 
conservative. Now, now Michael Wang, he, he's not conservative. In fact, he, he's actually been for uh, these affirmative action programs. But he was able to connect with Edward Bloom, and Edward Bloom is now, uh, in November 2014 of that same year, he put together uh, a group called Students for Fair Admissions to bring forward a lawsuit against Harvard, a federal suit, back in 2014. And the suit is arguing that, that Harvard is curating their, their racial breakdown and has been giving lower uh, academic marks, uh, similar to what we, we talked about uh, with, with the uh, SAT study before. Uh, in, 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 however, but this is in the personal category rather than the more clear-cut SATA category. The, the, the claim is that Harvard is reducing scores in things like as essays, marking those lower for Asian American students for letters of recommendation and for alumni interviews. Now, if, if Harvard is seen as balancing uh, racial profiles in the manner of which it's accused, the school could have to remove race from its academic evaluation process entirely. Now, this is going to happen this week. So we'll, we'll see how this leads out. I'm optimistic. I, I hope that like the case goes through and we, we do get to have this removed. But certain critics have framed this as Edward Blum using Asian American students to try to go with his uh, conservative uh, agenda to discriminate at large and to try to make it harder for uh, minorities of all kinds to get into college. I mean, based on what we're reading, at at the very least, we we should be able to admit that Asian American students are are facing issues, are are to some extent facing discrimination against against the system, Uh, legitimate racial discrimination. And that, that's what the court's going to be evaluating this week. I, I don't see the idea of giving college universities or campuses across the nation a blind eye towards race and, and sex and nationality. I don't see how, how that is a bad thing. If the university is blind to your physical characteristics... The only thing it can evaluate you on is your academic rigor, is your merit for the university. I believe that's the way it should be. And most Americans agree on that point, that universities should go by merit. And as Martin Luther King said, we should be judged by the content of our character, not by the color of our skin. So hopefully universities will be changing in this regard and we will evaluate students and applicants based on their merit, based on their qualifications. And we can reevaluate the lower education system and the state of the home for all students and all youth across the nation and have change over time to give students 
the best outcome possible. We all want equal opportunity. Every every child, every student should have an equal opportunity to get into campus. And that's the goal. One step at a time. So we, we will see how this case turns out within this week. I'm optimistic. Um, well, maybe this could be a widespread change across the nation. Uh, at the very minimum, if it's, if it's a win against Harvard, uh, there's a chance that this case could be limited to the specifics of the Harvard case and, and not spread across universities across the nation. Um, it'll depend on the scope that, that the judges go with in their eventual ruling. We will see. So keep, keep your eyes peeled on that. That's going to be a very interesting case in, in the week to come. And on that note, uh, that concludes our, our podcast for today on Affirmative Action. I, I hope you take the time to look into this topic yourself and to come to your own conclusions on what is the best solution uh, to the problem of, of racial disparities in college. What is the best solution? Is, is it retroactive um, uh, adjustment of college rates? Or is it improved lower education? Or maybe it's something else. Please go out, do the research, get the data, have the conversations. If anything, I want this to be a fostering point for a conversation and for better opportunity for everyone. So please have those intellectual discussions. Talk about this topic. I, I want to know what you think. And with that, have quality research. Have intellectual discourse. This is Alex from Looking In, signing off.